So very good evening. Uh, uh, may I extend a very warm welcome to uh, all of you uh, who are here tonight. Um, it's great to see you. Uh, my name is Jürgen Hake. Uh, I'm a faculty member of the International Relations uh, Department. I'm also the director of the Salisbury Hawk Southeast Asia Center, uh, which is part of the Institute of Global Affairs here at LSE. And it's the Salisbury Hawk Southeast Asia Center that is organizing tonight's uh, event. Uh, as <clears throat> you will be aware, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, has turned 50. When my colleagues at SEAC and I discussed last year how we should celebrate this special anniversary, we decided to organize a small lecture series this Michaelmas term. And this evening, we will have the first of three lectures uh, on ASEAN. The other two, I should just say, will take place on November 6th and November 20th. And then we will be looking at ASEAN as an actor in international fora, as well as uh, at ASEAN's institutional logic, logics and effects. Uh, please join us uh, for those events as well. But tonight, our attention will turn to ASEAN and the role that Indonesia has played within it. Now, historically, the establishment of ASEAN is, of course, more often than not viewed as having been prompted in part by attempts to move beyond the challenging relations that existed between Jakarta and some other Southeast Asian nations at the time of so-called confrontation. And in the years that followed, and indeed the decades that followed, the late 1960s, Indonesia was often seen as ASEAN's primus inter pares, or first among equals, given its political and increasing economic weight, as well as the size of its population, which obviously far outpaces uh, that of other ASEAN states. It is important to note, though, that at no point did Indonesia endeavor to lead ASEAN in ways which other ASEAN members would have found uncomfortable, and I think that is, makes for an interesting comparison of ASEAN to other regional organizations such as SARC. In more recent years, there have, of course, also been questions about whether ASEAN remains for Jakarta as important as it once was. And I think it's fair to say that such questions may not have been quite resolved as yet, at least not from the perspective of some of the analysts who are looking at Indonesian foreign and security policy. Now, to address the issue of Indonesia and or in ASEAN, I could not think of SEAC being able to invite a better positioned speaker than the one that we have here with us tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm absolutely delighted to be able to welcome to LSE His Excellency Dr. Rizal Sukma, Indonesia's ambassador to the United Kingdom and Ireland. Dr. Sukma is a graduate of the International Relations Department here at LSE. He was for many years the executive director of the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Jakarta. He also acted as advisor to Joko Widodo, Indonesia's current president, and Dr. Sukma has been Indonesia's ambassador in London since February 2016. Now, Dr. Sukma will speak for about 40 minutes. The title of the talk is on there, Indonesia and ASEAN, Reconciliation, Active Engagement and Strategic Reassessment. After the talk, we will go straight into the Q&A. And uh, since we don't want to lose any more time, may I ask you to make sure your phones are now on silent. 
You may, of course, continue to tweet. The hashtag is LSE at ASEAN. And it's my great pleasure now to invite His Excellency Dr. Sukma to deliver his remarks. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Jurgen Hacker. Uh, good evening to all of you. And of course, you know, I would like uh, to thank you for spending the evening listening to the 50 years of uh, ASEAN's you know, journey, and especially uh, Indonesia's uh, place in it and uh, Indonesia's role. But you know, before I go into the substance of the talk, you know, I would really would like to uh, actually express my probably envy Know, because you know, from 92 to 97, when I did my master's here and also my PhD, and also here, I don't think that we have this kind of nice building, actually, <laughs> for <laughs> the uh, the uh, uh, lecture, uh, and 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 a lot of cha you know have changed. It's actually you know around, and in fact, I still remember uh, it's just around the corner that in Hilton Street that was IR Departments before, then they moved to the Columbia House now. So it's a much nicer uh, place. So, you know, with, with these all facilities, and I'm sure that the current uh, IR student uh, here at LSE, almost all of them, you know, can get uh, uh, the best mark uh, or, or graduate with uh, merits. Uh, before, you know, I don't think it's, you know, many of us actually get that uh, distinctions when we uh, graduated. Well, anyway, uh, I've been here since uh, late February uh, 2016. Uh, and I thought that <coughs> I would focus more on Indonesia-UK relations. I forgot that actually uh, Dr. Hacker is at the LIC, you know, who keep you know actually talking about ASEAN. So in fact, you know, I can't actually leave you know ASEAN behind. And in fact, uh, uh, as I begin to look at ASEAN from a distance, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, I have you know changed some of my earlier uh, thought, you know, about you know this uh, 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 regional uh, grouping. Uh, of, of solidization uh, uh, countries. Uh, I mean, it's very clear it is impossible, you know, to ask, you know, a cow, you know, to become a horse. So, in fact, you know, we often criticize ASEAN, you know, for not being able, you know, to behave like a horse, while, in fact, ASEAN is a cow. <laughs> so, that is often, you know, actually the problem uh, uh, with many of us when we are outside, you know, of the policy-making establishment when we are, you know, actually looking at it uh, from, you know, from, you know, from, from the outside. Uh, you know, of course, it's easy to, uh, you know, criticize. You know, I think uh, Jurgen uh, knows very well. You know, in fact, you know, probably is quite puzzled. You know, why uh, I became one of the fierce, you know, critics of ASEAN in the past. Uh, but as an ambassador, uh, uh, Jurgen, you know, it's a bit difficult for me to be. You know, as critical as I was before, especially when I have some of my staff in the room. <laughs> <laughs> they might write a report and report to the foreign minister. <laughs> uh, uh, I have four points, you know, before I begin, you know, uh, talking about the, how the Indonesia's uh, uh, role in ASEAN, you know, uh, actually uh, evolved, you know, from, well, uh, uh, being, you know, uh, in the re uh, undertaking the reconciliations with the neighboring countries and then, you know, active engagement, then, you know, probably by uh, 2012, 2013, you know, we, begin, we began uh, uh, to undertake the uh, strategic uh, reassessment about, you know, Indonesia's place and also the place of ASEAN uh, in, in Indonesia's foreign policy. 
The first point that I think that you should really you know, keep in mind that the key supporters of and participants you know, to the establishment of ASEAN came from a very a small group of people who work you know, in a very small office in Tanah Abang. This is an area, a street in, in, in Jakarta. And some of them you know, later became the founders of CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, a leading think tank you know, which basically rank you know, among the top five uh, uh, think tanks in Asia Pacific uh, consistently. Uh, this is the place where I spent uh, my like 27 years you know, of, of careers you know, as an academic, as a policy uh, analyst. Uh, so therefore, to suggest that what, what I'm going to say uh, or, 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 you know, or me for that matter is going to be anti-ASEAN, I think is absurd. So it's basically, I came from that institute that you know, uh, took part in the establishment of the ASEAN. And second, as a researcher, so I'm trained really to say whatever I think. Uh, yet, you know, now I find myself in a position to think before I'm going to say anything. <laughs> so, so that's quite a contrast, you know, between researcher and, and also an ambassador or diplomat. So, that, you know, therefore I would like to apologize, you know, if at certain points during this uh, talk or during this lecture I might sound vague, uh, lack of clarity, or even confusing. So, so this is not, you know, this is not without intention. <laughs> so because, you know, as a diplomat, you know, I find it useful to be vague, <laughs> unclear, and confusing. So I hope my, you know, friends from the foreign ministry agree with that. You know, but, you know, I reject the claim that, you know, diplomat is an honest man in one country sent abroad to lie. So I don't think that definition is a good one, even though sometimes we just don't tell the whole truth. <laughs> we don't tell the whole, the whole story. So, you know, therefore, you know, as I'm now on leave as an academic, uh, so what, you know, I'm going to uh, share with you is not purely an academic analysis of ASEAN, you know, as probably Dr. Hacker would have, you know, expect. But probably, you know, we can uh, have a lot of discussion, you know, from uh, how uh, I see uh, Indonesia's place in ASEAN and also uh, ASEAN place in Indonesia's foreign policy. And, and third point, that the, the place of ASEAN, you know, in Indonesia's, you know, foreign policy and indeed, you know, in any of its member states, you know, foreign policy, so it's not set, you know, in stone. So it has changed, it is changing, and will continue to change, you know, as uh, circumstances dictated. So yet, within that constant change, one will always find, you know, continuity. So that continuity is, in part, found within the collective commitment, so I would call it even, you know, obsession, of Indonesian foreign policy elite, you know, to ASEAN. So this is a good thing, actually. You know, being obsessed with ASEAN is a good thing. Uh, it is also because of you know uh, uh, that deep commitment. You know that Indonesia's role in ASEAN has evolved. You know, from initially being driven by domestic imperative for regional reconciliation to an active engagement for regional peace and stability. So yet, as our national interests change and our strategic environment is also undergoing fundamental changes, so Indonesia feels obliged to undertake strategic reassessment on the place of ASEAN in its foreign policy. And finally, you know, as this lecture is part of the commemorations of the ASEAN's uh, 50th anniversary, so with a special reference you know, to Indonesia's role in it, so please bear with me, you know, if, uh, 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 because I will start this lecture with a brief historical uh, reflection on how Indonesia became a founding member of ASEAN and within what historical context and for what purposes. And naturally, this, this first part of uh, the uh, talk or lecture might be, you know, a bit boring, 
you know, to you. In fact, it's actually quite boring for me too. I was, you know, when I was writing this part of the you know, historical uh, assessment of ASEAN, I, I struggled. You know, actually, you can ask Hana, it's, uh, my wife, but you know, she actually uh, uh, saw us graduate, not LSE. Uh, you know, I fell asleep a couple of times you know, just writing about the uh, uh, background on, on, you know, on ASEAN. It's, it's quite boring, so please uh, bear with me. Uh, there have been no shortages you know, of academic literature uh, and analysis on Indonesia's role on, in the establishment of ASEAN. You can just you know, go and buy uh, Jurgen Hacker's book and then look at the uh, uh, list of literature, then all the books on ASEAN is actually you know, uh, is listed there uh, if you want to know, you know how ASEAN came about and so on. And, and of course, you know, why uh, Indonesia became a founding member of ASEAN has been a product of, of many factors. But in this lecture, I would like to focus only one particular aspect you know, of those you know, many uh, factors that you know, led to the establishment of ASEAN. So ASEAN is a byproduct of domestic political changes in Indonesia. So indeed, from the start, the formations of ASEAN uh, registers a very strong link with Indonesia's domestic politics. It shows you know, how Indonesia's you know, domestic politics serve as a key factor that made it possible for the, the associations you know, to come to life. So the evolution of ASEAN itself over the last 50 years also suggests that changes in the grouping were shaped by changes in domestic politics of member states. In other words, in other words domestic determinants were often at work at every twists and turns of ASEAN journey, from its conceptions in mid-1960s to its expansions in 1990s and to its procrastinations of today. This is actually a very difficult word, you know, to, uh, 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 you know, to say, you know, the uh, 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 procrastinations, you know. <laughs> so ASEAN, in my view, in that state, you know, is, you know, you always try, quite hesitate, you know, to move forward, you know, get, you know, uh, uh, on the standstill mode sometime. So, you know, we are, you know, in that, you know, in that process. So, but, you know, if you want to assess or evaluate or judge, you know, the uh, uh, merits of ASEAN, I think, you know, you need to look at what Southeast Asia looked like in the pre-ASEAN, you know, years. So ASEAN obviously was not the first attempt at regional cooperations. In 1955, the U.S. tried to form a Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, or SEATO, a collective defense system with the object of countering the spread of communism in the regions. In 1961, Thailand, the Philippines, and the Federation of Malaysia formed the associations of Southeast Asia. In July 1963, Manila tried to form Mafilindo, consisted of Federation of Malaya, the Philippines, and Indonesia. So all these initiatives actually failed, with Mafilindo lasted only for one month. So it was established, you know, and then they uh, tried to uh, have a summit a month later, and then basically you know, uh, failed. So why, this, why did these earlier experiments at regionalism uh, uh, fail? So one of the reasons was the largest country in the regions, Indonesia, was not an eager participa participant to the process. Indonesia was opposed to Seattle, seeing it as a tool of imperialist plot. So the prospect of success for ASA and the Mafilindo was also marred by conflict, distrust, and suspicions among the participants. The Philippines and the Federations of Malaya were fighting over the ownership of Sabah <coughs> and Sarawak. Indonesia under President Sukarno was opposed to the creations of Malaysia manifested you know, in its confrontations policy. 
So in short, regional politics in Southeast Asia in mid-1960s was a mess, so making it impossible for regional states to engage you know, in regional uh, cooperation and regionalism. But by late 1965, Indonesia politics changed dramatically, and consequently, it began to change regional politics as well. So after the fall of President Sukarno in Indonesia, our foreign policy of confrontations was replaced with a foreign policy of moderations and pragmatism. The new government and the President Suharto prioritized internal stability and economic development at home. So this new priority required a stable and friendly external environment. So Indonesia ended the policy of confrontation, rejoined the United Nations, and in fact Indonesia was and still is the only country that quit the UN in 1963, I think. Uh, so no, no other countries you know, actually quit the UN. So Indonesia was the only one in, you know, in the world. I don't know what they were thinking at the time. <laughs> so, and then, and then, you know, but uh, the diplomats at the foreign ministry was quite, you know, I think, uh, wise at the time. You know, they actually did not, you know, I think they didn't follow up you know, in the strictest sense. So, so it was easy for Indonesia later on to rejoin uh, uh, the uh, membership you know, in, you know, in, in the UN. We also restored our ties with the, uh, with the West uh, and, and actively uh, amended our relations with the neighboring state. And all these steps you know, paved the way for the establishment of ASEAN in August 1967. So for Indonesia, ASEAN was meant to function as a vehicle through which it could, it could seek reconciliations with neighboring countries, especially Malaysia and Singapore. And then soon after the establishment of ASEAN, you know, the new Indonesia's government you know, went to work you know, to address its own domestic uh, problems you know, and, and agenda. Uh, we focused you know, on the uh, economic development, uh, but as its economic condition improved, Indonesia became more comfortable you know, with, you know, with uh, ASEAN. But I think some of you might uh, know that ASEAN didn't have any summit you know, until 1976. So at that time, you know, it's basically the, the basic premise that Indonesia's foreign policy toward ASEAN was, you know, let's you know, have this association and then we all could actually focus you know, on uh, our own uh, domestic uh, problem. There are a number of characteristics of ASEAN that will explain why Indonesia was very comfortable with this regional uh, grouping. The first factor, of course, there was no sensitive issues on its agenda of cooperation. In fact, almost there was no agenda you know, for cooperation anyway in 1968, 69. And then, of course, the, the second uh, factor, the, 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 the sanctity of the principle of non-interference you know, in domestic affairs. You know, because you know, during the 50s and also uh, early 60s, the, the problem is really you know, because you know, we intervene in each other and then you know, it would make it you know, difficult uh, for member states to focus on internal development. And the third factor, uh, uh, because ASEAN adopted you know, this so-called quiet diplomacy you know, as an instrument of conflict resolutions, and then you know, we love ASEAN you know, because it prefers informality in managing conflict and dispute settlement, and also uh, because it enables you know, leaders you know, in, in the membership, uh, among the members to forge a closer uh, personal ties among leaders. And of course, ASEAN moved at a pace comfortable you know, to all. So there was no pressure at all. You know, actually, at, that, at the early years, you know, being in ASEAN, uh, you don't feel it, you know, basically, that you are in ASEAN you know, because of that agreement at, you know, at, 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 at the beginning. So this sort of ASEAN, uh, you know, serve Indonesia's interests very well. And, and there were eight Indonesia's strategic interests at the time. 
Number one, to reintegrate Indonesia into the international society, you know, especially within Southeast Asia. You know, I remember, you know, we actually undertook that uh, confrontation policy against Malaysia, Singapore, and so on. You know, in order to create you know, an external environment by promoting regional reconciliations and also managing intramural disputes. Our second interest at the time is to restore Indonesia's credibility you know, as a responsible member of the international community. ASEAN helped a lot you know, in that uh, regard. And third, to reduce the suspicions of Indonesia's intention you know, in, in the regions, you know, especially this is true for Malaysia and Singapore. You know, of course, they were very suspicious of Indonesia after we launched the uh, policy of confrontations you know, against them. Then number five, you know, to serve ASEAN, you know, ASEAN uh, is used to serve as a collective bargaining tool via the extra regional powers. Uh, the, uh, one case that I uh, uh, could uh, 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 I can cite is actually you know we had a problem with with Japan in in, in like mid 1970s uh, because you know Japan suddenly you know wanted to develop the synthetic rubber at the time that basically uh, uh, undermined the productions of rubber you know in, in Indonesia Malaysia and so on and ASEAN uh, managed you know to come up with the uh, common position and the put pressure on you know on, on, on Japan at the time. So it was a very good, you know, collective bargaining tool, you know, via the extra regional powers for, for, for Indonesia. Six, to serve as collective regional diplomatic buffer, you know, against external pressures and criticism. And in fact, uh, it was good, you know, because, you know, whenever, you know, member state, you know, had uh, human rights uh, problems, for example, when we got criticized by the West, and then ASEAN usually came to our defense. And especially true, you know, after we invaded East Timor in 1975. And then uh, uh, at the UN, you know, ASEAN helped a lot, you know, in, in order to uh, uh, explain, you know, to the uh, wider international community about the, the, the domestic developments of many um, uh, uh, member states. This is, you know, I think uh, the uh, so-called the ASEAN solidarity that became an important part of the ASEAN cooperation. Number seven, you know, the functions, you know, of ASEAN for Indonesia's domestic uh, interest is to ensure stable interstate relations in Southeast Asia. And, and, and this is, I think, is quite you know, important, you know, because we look at the history, it managed the uh, Vietnam problem, you know, especially after 1976 and also the, uh, after the, the, the Vietnam's invasion of Cambodia. It contained communism and also you know, ASEAN uh, helped uh, and uh, provide you know, a platform through which Indonesia could uh, mediate uh, some of the uh, member states' you know, uh, problems. Uh, the latest one is, of course, between Cambodia and, and Thailand uh, in, uh, I think, uh, 20... Uh, 12 or 20, uh, 2013. And number eight, uh, this is, I think, where, you know, things, you know, uh, 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 become, you know, interesting. You know, ASEAN function as a vehicle, you know, to realize Indonesia's visions of regional order. So we try to reduce the region's resilience, uh, reliance on external powers, you know, for regional security by advocating regional resilience doctrine, ZOFAN, and also the Treaty of Amity and, and Cooperations. And after the Cold War, you know, I think we became even more active, you know, especially you know, in our engagement with the, uh, uh, with, with the efforts you know, to preserve ASEAN centrality and also Southeast Asia strategic autonomy. There were a number of initiatives that we took you know, at that time. So Indonesia actively engaged in regional attempt to shape the post-Cold War regional architecture in the regions by ensuring ASEAN centrality while encouraging greater participations by other major powers and also regional powers in the regional processes. And this led to the establishment of the ASEAN uh, Regional Forum in 1994. 
and Indonesia also backed the efforts to expand ASEAN external relations by deepening the grouping's engagement with all major powers, especially the US, China, Japan and India, and also regional middle powers such as Australia and South, uh, South Korea. And this led to the establishment of the East Asia Summit in 2005. As the only member of the G20 from Southeast Asia, we also bridged uh, ASEAN's link with the G20. So we took the lead also in consolidating ASEAN's political cooperations, culminating in the adoptions of the ASEAN political and security community. Then I'm, I'm happy to note uh, Ambassador Gary Yusuf, you know, he was the director for the uh, political and security cooperations of ASEAN at the time. So we worked very closely together in, in order to, you know, promote this idea of transforming uh, ASEAN into a uh, security community at the time. Uh, but actually, Pak Gary changed it into ASEAN political and security community <laughs> in, in, in 2003. Then also we took, you know, a lot of steps, you know, to ensure that uh, uh, ASEAN uh, laid, you know, the, the stronger foundation in order to be a global actor after uh, uh, the adoptions of what we call as the ba uh, Bali Concord uh, III uh, in 2013. So despite such, you know, activism, however, elements of ambiguity continue to be detected in Indonesia's, you know, attitude toward ASEAN. That ambiguity begin, uh, began to resurface during the process of drafting the ASEAN Charter in 2007 and 2008. Uh, at that time, Indonesia argued that ASEAN needed some institutional changes in order to stay relevant and effective. The ASEAN Charter was seen as an opportunity you know, to push ASEAN toward their directions. Yet, unfortunately, our regional partners were not convinced. So many Indonesia's proposals were rejected. Uh, for one, there was a great resistance to the inclusions of democracy and human rights you know, into the ASEAN Charter. A proposal that ASEAN should have a mechanism to reinforce compliance and regime sanctions was also turned down. Probably you should remember those difficult years back in 2004, I think, 2007 and 8. The idea for a new system of financial contributions was thrown out of the window. Proposals for an ASEAN peacekeeping force was rejected. So the ASEAN Charter, when it was approved in 2007, you know, became a source of disappointment you know, to, to Indonesia. For those you know, who are not familiar with ASEAN uh, on the financial contributions, for example, the rules is actually every member state should pay you know, uh, an, an, an equal amount you know, of uh, uh, contributions. And it's usually uh, uh, you know, we look at you know, which member state that you know, pay the least, right? So if country A say, you know, well, this year I can only pay one million, everybody will pay one million, right? So if next year, you know, uh, one country say, well, probably this year I'm going to pay like 500,000 per year, and then the second the second general will be in trouble because, you know, his salary will be cut by half. <laughs> so, so that's, you know, the method. And in 2007, you know, we proposed we need to change that. So each member state should take, you know, I mean, should pay differently. So we come up with a formula uh, that almost like the UN system, yeah? So, you know, take into account the size of the country, number of populations, the GDP, and so on. And of course, Indonesia and Singapore rank number one, so we have to pay more. And then again, you know, actually that idea was, uh, at the time, uh, still uh, rejected, you know, because uh, some countries still worried that if, you know, uh, some countries pay more and some countries pay, pay less, and then those who pay more will, will think that, you know, they are more entitled, you know, to uh, run uh, ASEAN, or they, they, they will think that they have uh, more privilege. 
But to be frank with you, not as ambassador, is basically if Indonesia want to be dominant, you know, we can. You know, we don't need this, you know, uh, to pay more in order to try to dominate. You know, the, you, know, you know, the regions, we are half of the region anyway. You know, so, but, you know, we, you know, we didn't do that, you know, because, you know, we learned also, you know, in many other regional groupings, actually they failed to take off, you know, because, you know, one or two countries try to exercise a degree of dominance over others. And in fact, there have been a lot of academic analysis about Indonesia's role, you know, in, in ASEAN, you know, because ASEAN works because the largest number willingly, you know, to exercise these restraints, you know, not to try to dominate and then try, you know, to come up with this idea of uh, a dialogue, consensus, you know, as a, the only mechanism through which uh, ASEAN member states reach the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the agreement and decision. So I think that's the beauty, you know, of, of ASEAN, and that we did that in actually in a very conscious way, you know, because uh, we don't want, you know, ASEAN, you know, to fail, you know, because we do see, as I mentioned earlier, uh, that ASEAN uh, uh, does, you know, actually a lot of good you know for you know for you know for Indonesia so despite of this disappointment so Indonesia went along with the wishes of the majority we realized that ASEAN is also about process not necessarily about progress so change you know has to come you know has to be evolutionary so that I think something that we learn during the process of this drafting of the ASEAN Charter but you know, I personally realized you know, there was a need to start a new round of debate you know, on how Indonesia should see its role in ASEAN. So a strategic reassessment of the utility and functions for, you know, uh, of ASEAN for Indonesia was needed. So this is what the debate you know, on a post-ASEAN foreign policy all about since you know, my article on the subject appeared in Jakarta Post in 2009. So it really created a lot of you know, steer and debate, uh, not only in Indonesia at the time, uh, also, I think across you know South, South Asia, when 2009, actually I didn't, I, I really didn't uh, uh, mean to create this debate at the time, because you know, but the, the the editor of the Jakarta Post you know called me and then asked me to write something about ASEAN, so I just wrote it, and then actually created a lot of you know <laughs> reaction at the time when basically I argued that because of all these changes, Indonesia probably need to start thinking about a post ASEAN foreign policy. There a lot of people, including the foreign ministry at the time, thought that I was advocating Indonesian exit you know, of, of ASEAN. You know, so you know, post ASEAN, you know, they understood it as like you know, leave or quit you know, uh, you know, ASEAN. Then, but it's also a good misunderstanding at the time because you know, I had to write two or three more articles to explain it <laughs> so, and, 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 and get, you know, get you know, published on this you know, subject you know, alone at the time. Uh, so, but you know, let me take this opportunity to expand on that particular you know uh, issue again and revisit you know the whole questions of the post-ASEAN foreign policy and the utility of ASEAN for 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 Indonesia. I have mentioned that ASEAN is needed to reintegrate Indonesia into the interna international society, you know, especially within the Southeast Asia. So this is kind of reassessment you know, because that was ASEAN function before. So let's see whether this still you know, uh, 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 play the similar functions for Indonesia's international interest. So I think we have achieved that. You know, we are part of the international society now. We, you know, managed to reintegrate ourselves back into the international society. So for that particular interest, ASEAN is no longer useful, you know, because it's become part of the international society. ASEAN also helped Indonesia to restore our international credibility. This has also been achieved. 
In fact, you know, uh, some even in Indonesia begin to criticize the government, saying that Indonesia is too nice, you know, as a member of international community. So that's why nobody, you know, pay attention to Indonesia because we never create, you know, problem for others, you know. So we always, <laughs> we always agree with everybody. We always try to seek consensus, you know, and so on. So because, you know, we, we, we are too nice, and then sometimes people forget that Indonesia is actually exists over there in Southeast Asia. So, you know, restoring our international credibility it's actually uh, uh, has been achieved. And ASEAN, I don't think that uh, continue to serve that you know, purpose. Unless, you know, uh, say like 20 years from now, 25 years from now, some, you know, guy become president and then, you know, undertake crazy foreign policy again, then, you know, probably we need ASEAN again to come back to the international community later. Number four, to reduce the suspicions of Indonesia's intention in the regions. So this is mostly, you know, accomplished you know, as well. But I think still very relevant. No, because you know, I don't. I don't think that these suspicions, not only you know other countries of Indonesia, but you know, I think you know among the ASEAN countries is still there. So ASEAN is a vehicle to reduce uh, suspicions among member states, especially toward the largest one. Is still, I think, quite you know relevant. You know, I'm sure that Malaysia, Singapore, and others are still quite suspicious. We also suspicious of some other members as well. <laughs> so ASEAN, you know, this uh, function number three is actually still very relevant. You know, for for Indonesia. ASEAN was useful you know, as it enabled Indonesia to focus on internal consolidation and also economic development. So this is, again, you know, I think still relevant, uh, but not sufficient. You know, because you know, if you look at the data, you know, our main trading partners is actually not ASEAN. You know, it's all outside ASEAN, South Korea, Japan, China, you name it. So, you know, so in, in, you know, in that context, you know, ASEAN is you know, important. Uh, it's necessary, but not sufficient. So that's why you know, I think you know, in the economic uh, uh, sector, you know, so we need to do that, you know, the thinking, you know, and also to not only to strengthen the intra-ASEAN trade and also uh, Indonesia's trade with all the other ASEAN member states, but also probably you know, look into other uh, platforms as well. The fifth functions, uh, you know, to serve as collective bargaining tool, VRV extra-regional powers. So I would say that you know, this function now is less, less relevant. Uh, because of the you know diverse strategic interests among the ASEAN member states, differences you know in threat perceptions, and especially you know because of the uh, uh, growing uh, uh, rivalry between China and, and the U.S. and in fact ASEAN could get entangled you know in the strategic ri rivalry you know among the, the great powers. So you know in that context, I'm not really sure that ASEAN uh, can you know provide this uh, uh, can function as the bargaining tool you know for all ASEAN member states you know via the extra regional powers when, you know, we are not sure how to deal with those extra-regional powers. Number six, to serve as a collective regional diplomatic buffer, you know, against external pressure and criticism, so all the ASEAN solidarity. Again, you know, this function is now less relevant, you know, because, you know, if you look at uh, Indonesia or even other uh, ASEAN member states, it would be very difficult these days, you know, I think, to rally this ASEAN, you know, collective uh, support, you know, when a member get criticized, you know, because of the violation of human rights, because of the domestic problems that, 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 that we have. So ASEAN no longer uh, can no longer function, you know, like it was before, in order to provide this collective, quote-unquote, defense, you know, when a member state get criticized, you know, for terrible things that happen in each, you know, domestic, you know, domain. So, you know, in, you know, in that context, you know, the function of ASEAN as the diplomatic buffer, uh, you know, is, is less uh, relevant, you know, today. So if, you know, member state, you know, get criticized by international community, the sad reality is that, you know, you are on your own, man. <laughs> so, you know, you can't help you, you know, if you uh, uh, start killing your own people, then, you know, good luck, you know, dealing with the international community. I don't think that 
uh, ASEAN, you know, would you know rally and then uh, provide support, you know, for that kind of uh, problem. The function number seven, you know, to ensure stable interstate relation. This is still very relevant, you know, today, and in fact, this is one of the most crucial, you know, elements of the ASEAN cooperation. It's actually to prevent, you know, war among member states and also, you know, to ensure a stable interstate relation. ASEAN was about this and still is, and I think will continue, you know, to be about preventing interstate uh, conflicts, you know, and you know, and war. Function number five, you know, as a vehicle to realize Indonesia's vision of regional order, and especially to reduce the Indonesia's reliance, you know, on external powers, you know, for uh, regional uh, security. That is also, I think, quite problematic now, you know, because ASEAN as a whole, you know, really face uh, a challenge, you know, in this area, you know, and, and especially uh, we're still, you know, struggling to find uh, the best way, you know, to preserve the Southeast Asia uh, strategic autonomy, you know, especially, you know, in, in light of the growing rivalry among the major powers. So it is very clear that, the, you know, the eight functions of ASEAN that I mentioned before during the, 70, the 60s, 70s, and, uh, and also uh, up to the uh, 90s have indeed, you know, undergone, you know, some, some changes. And second, there have been also changes, you know, in Indonesia's foreign policy priorities, you know, especially between 1999 to, to, to uh, 2014. A uh, new uh, agenda, you know, came up in Indonesia's foreign policy. Uh, for example, under President Yudhoyono, you know, Indonesia tried to project new assets, quote-unquote, in, you know, foreign policy, you know, as the third largest democracy and also as the largest moderate, you know, Muslim country. So, you know, within that, you know, uh, attempt to create that new international identity, I don't think that ASEAN, you know, uh, 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 matters much, you know, because this is the perception of Indonesia that we, you know, try to create, you know, beyond, you know, beyond, you know, beyond ASEAN. So it's not very... Uh, relevance to talk about, you know, how ASEAN can help Indonesia to force that uh, international identity at the time. But, you know, the new uh, uh, interest of preserving territorial integrity, ASEAN is still very, you know, I think crucial and, and, and very uh, uh, relevant, you know, for uh, that particular, you know, interest. And then the third priority in our foreign policy during that period, you know, ASEAN ability to respond to new challenges. Uh, that's, you know, also, I think, uh, problematic, you know, because ASEAN uh, is quite constrained, you know, in, in, in dealing with the, uh, you, know, you know, great, great powers. Uh, the fourth priority of Yudhoyono's government, you know, economic cooperation to assist domestic recovery, uh, especially, you know, after the uh, uh, crisis in 2008, uh, while we were still recovering from the crisis in 1998, uh, ASEAN is, is important, but we also need to look, you know, beyond, you know, ASEAN at that time. And third, there were also this changing strategic environment you know, within, uh, within which Indonesia finds itself. So East Asia is uh, becoming a new center of gravity of the world with all strategic implications that might entail. So first, China's greater role and influence is inevitable. Second, the perception of American decline persists and the U.S. would soon become a superpower emeritus. So it's not only professor who can emeritus, I think that. Uh, superpower can also become emeritus. So third, there is a possibility of the return of great power politics you know, to the regions. And fourth, while economic interdependence is growing, the region's dependence on China, uh, China's economic power is also growing. And then five, the future shape of regional order due to the competing strategic visions among the great powers becomes uncertain. So it was at you know, this, the intersection of these three 
uh, changes, you know, the changes in uh, uh, earlier functions of ASEAN for Indonesia, changes in foreign policy priorities, and also changes, uh, you know, in the strategic environment that drive Indonesia to undertake the strategic reassessment, you know, of, of ASEAN. So the key questions here is not whether we should abandon ASEAN or exit ASEAN. So we instead began to think about, you know, how to best, uh, best pursue our national interests within the context of larger foreign policy uh, imperative. So in other words, Indonesia needs to find a new balance you know, in its approach toward the outside world, one in which ASEAN is still very important, but at the same time also seek to utilize other platform. So this approach is clearly manifested in Indonesia's foreign policy under President Joko Widodo. So Indonesia is now trying to balance you know, past preference for norms buildings with a more action-oriented, more realist and interest-driven initiative you know, in, in foreign policy. So don't get me wrong, norms are important. You know, I think if I say norms are not important, then uh, Jurgen will get very upset. Because his book is also about norm, you know, strategic culture. So because you know, without norms, interstate relations would be dictated you know, by this hierarchy of power. Uh, and without norms, uh, the strong would do what they can, while the weak suffer what they must. So any IR student here or all? So you know who said that, right? Yeah, so I got, well, when I was uh, doing my master's, you know, that's the first book that I had to read here at the LSE. And then I couldn't understand the English you know, of that book, you know, the, the, the Thucydides uh, Polyponesian War. And so where this you know, Malian dialogue, I think until today at least, uh, in, in my view, you know, still quite relevant, that the strong will always do what they can and then the weak suffer what, you know, what they must. That's the world you know, where norms you know, have no place. But, I think, so, but norms alone are not sufficient. Uh, we need to inject you know, a sense of realism you know, into foreign policy and, and diplomacy. So we need to define our foreign policy in terms of tangible material gains such as trade, investment, and tourism, and also in terms of the intangible outcomes you know, such as security and the preservation of sovereignty. So we are trying to find a correct balance between multilateralism and bilateralism in our engagement with the outside world. Because for too long, we thought that multilateralism was the best course of action available to smaller and middle powers in a world dominated by great powers. For too long also, we thought that our national interest would be better served if we spend more of time and our limited resources on issues debated in multilateral forums such as the United Nations. For example, until now, I can't, I can't understand why we have a debate on the disarmament, while we know that disarmament will never take place, <laughs> the, the, the nuclear you know, disarmament. But nevertheless, it's important to have that debate. Uh, for too long also, we thought that all our national interests would be achieved if we sit longer hours in ASEAN meetings, workshops, conferences, and dialogues. So ASEAN is very good you know, in organizing you know, uh, meetings, workshops, conferences, and, and, and dialogues. So, you know, I, I hope, you know, they, they will, you know, uh, 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 reduce number of workshops or conferences they organize. Otherwise, think tanks like, you know, CSIS or even Asia Host, you know, will, you know, run out of, I think, you know, <laughs> works you know, because we've been taken up by, you know, by ASEAN. And we forget, you know, within those multilateral frameworks, what matters the most is how to develop our bilateral ties with key partners around the world. We forget multilateralism is not a substitute to bilateralism. Balancing the two is what we are trying you know, to do. So we are conducting a foreign policy that would help us achieve our domestic priorities as well. And some analysts you know, call this a domestic turn 
in Indonesia's foreign policy. So in fact, it should be understood as a balanced expression you know, between national interests on the, one, on the one hand and international obligations on the other. So President Jokowi was elected with a very clear mandate to fix Indonesia's domestic problems, not ASEAN problem. So it is natural for him you know, to devote more of his time and energy you know, to manage domestic priorities, especially you know, in economy. He also understands that a country's international stature you know, would not matter much unless it is derived from strong domestic base, you know, especially the economy. So revitalization of domestic foundations of foreign policy has become a key priority you know, for Jokowi presidency. And indeed, President Jokowi is a strong believer you know, in, in the dictum that foreign policy begins at home. So this characteristic of our foreign policy you know, has been misunderstood. Uh, Indonesia is seen as becoming inward-looking, not interested you know, in building relationship with the outside world unless it brings concrete material benefits you know, to Indonesia. Indonesia is accused of becoming self-centered, selfish, and even more suspicious of the outside world. So it is in this context that we are accused of abandoning ASEAN and not interested in playing an active role in East Asia. When we do, our engagement is seen as a superficial and routine and lacks meaningful initiative. The absence of Indonesia's leadership in managing the South China Sea dispute, for example, is often cited as evidence you know, of this. But no one in Indonesia actually advocate that you know, the country should uh, exit you know, ASEAN. So Indonesia has been and will continue to be a strong proponent you know, of ASEAN. And in fact, you know, for five decades now, Indonesia has always been loyal and committed to ASEAN. Some are even still obsessed with ASEAN, somewhere in Jalan Pejambon in Jakarta. <laughs> And let me assure you that Indonesia will continue to be loyal you know, and committed to ASEAN for the next five decades and more. So in conclusion, let me reiterate you know, two points, which basically uh, try to summarize you know, how I think you know, ASEAN you know, after 50 years and then what are the uh, next you know, 50 years you know, should look like. First, ASEAN is one of not the only many platforms through which we must seek to defend and fulfill our national interests abroad. So despite the persistent proclamations by some in Indonesia's foreign ministry and, uh, and other circles, ASEAN now is a cornerstone of Indonesia's foreign policy, not the cornerstone of Indonesia's foreign policy. Anyone who argues otherwise is to fool oneself. So because, you know, I think what we have to do now, we just, you know, we work through ASEAN whenever, you know, we, uh, 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 we need because there are a lot of our interests that can be achieved you know, through cooperation with ASEAN and then try to push for a certain agenda whenever we can and go beyond it whenever you know, our interests you know, cannot be fulfilled through our engagement with ASEAN. So this is also, I think, you know, the uh, uh, path that many other ASEAN countries you know, to, uh, 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 to take because I don't think that one country can actually you know, get all its interests from one you know, regional or even uh, multilateral uh, uh, platform. So nothing unique or nothing scary you know, from this post-ASEAN foreign policy. So what I'm trying to do is just, you know, like, you know, ASEAN is one of the mechanisms, you know, through which that we should and could fulfill our national interests. But there are also others that we need to pay attention to. And then, you know, in fact, now under President Jokowi, I think one aspect that we often forget, the importance of the bilateral cooperations, both within ASEAN and with countries or non-ASEAN countries, you know, is being, I think, rectified, you know, that a new uh, approach. You know, so we begin you know, to look at uh, some of the key bilateral relations you know, for Indonesia and then you know, uh, work 
harder, you know, in order to deepen and also expand that uh, particular uh, bilateral uh, relationship. But it doesn't mean that, you know, we abandon multilateralism, you know, altogether. And second, ASEAN should revitalize, reform, and adjust itself, you know, for the better. It should constantly ground itself, you know, into the changing strategic reality in the regions and beyond, find solutions to the corresponding strategic predicaments, and also preserve Southeast Asia's strategic autonomy. Failure to do so, you know, would mean the return of the power politics to the regions, and that would mean an end to the ASEAN current role as the manager of regional order. But if you look at ASEAN experience, you know, in the different historical juncture, usually, you know, we would find a way on how to deal with the changing uh, strategic environment. So we did that uh, during the uh, fall of, of, of uh, South Vietnam uh, in 1975. You know, ASEAN got together and then come up with, you know, uh, new ideas on how we can strengthen uh, our cooperations. And then, uh, secondly, you know, after the uh, uh, Cold War, uh, we also managed, you know, to find a way how to deal with that. Uh, by bringing in all the major players, you know, into the regions. And then now, I think, it's uh, the third, you know, uh, 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 critical challenge that we face, especially during the, uh, this uh, uh, power shift that is taking place in the regions, that even though now, you know, we don't see yet what sort of the uh, strategy that, or, or policy that ASEAN will come up with, but, you know, I think uh, we'll get there, you know, especially uh, when the shape of the uh, emerging regional order is becoming uh, clearer, then I think uh, these conversations and also the imperative for ASEAN, you know, to find a way to deal with that, you know, will eventually, you know, uh, uh, come up. So I think I just uh, stop there, and then probably we can uh, have uh, uh, deeper discussions on that. Thank you very much. Okay. That means we can now move to Q&A. Thank you very much for this fantastic talk. Um, I'm sure there will be many questions um, in the audience. Um, I propose to maybe collect um, two sets of questions. First of all, if you could please identify yourself, uh, say your name, your affiliation, uh, and then sort of ask your question. Yeah? Um, sort of in the middle, in the middle here, uh, let's start with that. Hello, good evening. Thank you very much, Your Excellency and Dr. Jürgen, for organizing a very informative and interesting session. Unfortunately, I was a little bit late. I've come in all the way from South London. I've actually come in all the way from the Middle East, where I, I know some members of the Indonesian community. And I've been watching uh, with interest the developments. I'm not a specialist, but in um, the ASEAN region. My question to His Excellency is, uh, how big a threat are some of the neighbors, particularly China, and I totally get it, um, in, a, in an official role, maybe uh, uh, you know, your, your answer is somewhat tempered, uh, but it has been a bit of a threat, perceived as, as a threat and an actual threat for a lot of the nations and sovereigns in that region and beyond. And secondly, uh, you know, how, how does the government at the central level intend to deal with it? Is it just through the platform of ASEAN? So the, 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 the threat that China itself is exerting uh, super sovereign rights in, in the entire region, uh, how is Indonesia dealing with that? Could you just, for the benefit of the audience, still say again who you are? So. Sorry, um, I, I should have introduced myself. I'm Asif Sabri. Um, I'm basically a, a, a banker based in Dubai, and I'm an LSE alumnus from 
uh, exactly uh, 20 odd years ago. Thank you very much. Uh, the second question I would take from sort of, uh, I think, one, two, three, six row. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Suma, for the insightful presentation. Uh, my name is Ben Leong. I'm an IR student here at LSE. I'm from Malaysia. Um, so you mentioned that uh, my, my question is actually very similar to the one uh, the, uh, the guy just mentioned. Um, you mentioned that Indonesia's foreign policy is often a product of its domestic politics. So nowadays we have seen Indonesia as well as some other countries in Southeast Asia are getting more and more Chinese investment due to the benefits that they bring in terms of upgrading their infrastructure, something that President Jogowi have emphasized a lot. Um, as, which is also a means to achieve its uh, higher ec economic growth. So my, my question would be, how can Indonesia become a role model for other ASEAN countries to maintain this neutrality, um, especially when um, the U.S. seems to be getting more and more disengaged and the fact that President Trump hasn't, advocated, hasn't put forward his, his agenda in Southeast Asia? How can Indonesia take the lead in uh, maintaining in sort of reducing Chinese, uh, Chinese influence politically and uh, geopolitically and, economic, and economically in the region. Thank you. Thank you. Are you okay with us? Sure. Yes, well, we, we don't see China as a threat. It's actually, uh, that was in the 60s, yes, you know, up to probably around like, you know, 1980s, uh, especially, you know, because Indonesia was dealing with this... Uh, internal uh, 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 threats, you know, of communism, you know, especially uh, uh, during the uh, the establishment of the, I mean, the, 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 the consolidation of the Communist Party back in the late 50s and also until uh, mid-60s. Uh, so China's foreign policy was, you know, a problem, you know, for us at the time. But since we restored our diplomatic ties in 1990, and then, especially after we became a democracy, this is the irony of Indonesia-China relations. It's actually Indonesia-China relations began to pick up after Indonesia became a democracy. You know, when we were authoritarian, you know, actually it's very difficult to uh, 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 improve that relation with China from 1990 to 1998. But since 1999, you know, our uh, relationship with China began to you know, improve. So we begin to learn, relearn, and unlearn you know, about China uh, because you know, we didn't have diplomatic ties for 23 years. Uh, and then, in fact, you know, Chinese characters were banned during, during that time. So since then, uh, trade began to increase, you know, economic interaction, you know, started to pick up. Uh, and, and then, you know, there was what I call this growing, you know, comfort, you know, in Indonesia, you know, in dealing uh, with, you know, with China, you know, since, uh, say, 19, uh, 1999, 2000, up to now. So we don't see, you know, uh, China as, as a threat, you know, per se, uh, even though, of course, we do have, you know, some, uh, differences and dispute, you know, if you like, uh, dispute not on territorial issue, uh, but on the fishing uh, issue, you know, because uh, we, we, we thought that, you know, the uh, area around the Natuna Island uh, falls within our EZ, and then there were incidents in the past, you know, with, you know, with China, uh, uh, but, you know, we didn't see that, you know, as, as, you know, as, as, as uh, the uh, territorial, you know, dispute. So we don't, we don't see uh, China as a threat, but in fact, uh, the rise of China is a fact, it's, an, it's inevitable, you know, and then in fact, you know, we look at uh, across the regions, you know, the rise of, I mean, the Chinese, you know, uh, China has become very important factor for also economic development in many Southeast Asia countries. So, of course, there is a challenge, you know, how you manage all the implication, all the impact that, you know, might 
uh, be, you know, on uh, a member state, you know, of you know of ASEAN. Uh, uh, both China and also ASEAN state are still learning, you know, how to manage those, you know, uh, you know, in you know, in, you know implication. This is related to the uh, questions about uh, Chinese, you know, the growing Chinese investment in you know in the regions. If you look at the data in Indonesia, uh, uh, I think people tend to see as if Indonesia and then you have China, and then look, look at the numbers, uh, it goes up, right? So now is the Chinese investment in Indonesia 1.6 billion US dollars. But in order to get things in perspective, you need also to look at the investment from other you know, countries. So in fact, the largest investors in Indonesia, Singapore, you know, 4.7 billion. And then you have uh, Japan, you know, still around 4 billion. And in fact, if you look at like 10 years you know, uh, uh, data, and then you can see that the, you know, the, uh, Japan, Malaysia, Singapore you know, is very high up over here in terms of investment. And then China is over here. So what President Jokowi is trying to do to encourage China to actually also you know, increase in investment engagement you know, in, in, in Indonesia. So yes, true that China now is, I think, the third largest investors in Indonesia, but the numbers is still quite, I think, you know, uh, uh, small compared to uh, Singapore, Malaysia, and also uh, Japan. So it's not that Indonesia leaning toward China in terms of like trade and, and investment, but we try to make China to lean more on Indonesia. <laughs> so so you know, to bring these you know, numbers you know, up. So that's, you know, I think, the way we should look at it. So I don't think that uh, 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 this uh, 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 indicates that you know, China's uh, uh, investment you know, uh, is, is a dominant already in, you know, in, in, in Indonesia. So you know, in that context, uh, you know, I, don't, I don't think that uh, we should uh, uh, over, you know, overly uh, worried about the uh, China's you know, economic engagement you know, in, you know, in, you know, in the regions. How do we deal with the you know, so-called China challenge? Uh, that's quite tough, you know, in fact, you know, because the best options you know, for uh, countries like Indonesia, and in fact the entire Southeast Asia, in dealing with this probably, you know, I'm not sure whether you know, we should call it the, to see this trap yet, you know, that you know, the rise of one country you know, compel you know, this fear in the existing uh, power, and then you know, at the end they will go to war. Uh, we're not sure yet you know, whether that uh, to see this trap you know, will actually uh, apply to uh, uh, East Asia. Uh, but this is also a new thing for you know, many Southeast Asian countries. That suddenly you, know, you have the, uh, China is really powerful, but at the same time, you know, Japan is still also very important, it's very powerful. Then you see also India you know, coming you know, to East Asia as a very important player and also uh, uh, is on the rise. And of course, well, the U.S. is a bit different now. You know? It's a bit hard to, to pin down where the U.S. is going. Yeah? <laughs> so, so, but you know, even if you leave you know, the U.S. factor you know, uh, uh, out, at least in this region you have you know, all these major powers you know, at the same time, together. They're all quite powerful. Of course, China is more powerful in terms of economic uh, 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 powers that they have. So you know, in that context, the best options probably, this is the research that uh, Jurgen is, is working on, hedging. You know, so you try to be nice to everybody you know, in case that you, know, you get into trouble with one, one of them, and then you know, the others will come you know, to help you. But in reality, uh, the, our strategy is actually, uh, for those who are IR students, we will understand this very well. The strategy that we are pursuing is actually by taking this English School of International Relations. So we try to combine norms and uh, uh, power, you know, in this, uh, norm institutions and also balance of power. So we do believe that you know, norms are important. So that's why you know, ASEAN is a bit obsessed with, you know, with norms. Yeah? 
I, I hope you agree with that. <laughs> because, you know, we have all these, you know, TAC, we have all these uh, uh, Zolf Fund, you know, uh, John Fest, uh, you name it. You know, all these, you know, it's actually uh, uh, aimed at creating norms. Because, you know, we do believe that norms can also modify state behavior. You know, because, you know, without norms, you know, state will do whatever they want. With norms, at least they will think twice, you know, before they do stupid things. You know, because they know that, you know, re reputation is also very important for, you know, for, you know, for state. But, you know, we also believe norms will not be effective unless it is supported by a stable balance of power among the major powers. So it's a bit strange, you know, for those, you know, who are studying IR, because, you know, you've been told, I think you are still being told, that, you know, only these three paradigms, you know, realism, and then neo-institutionalism, you know, or Marxist theory of IR. So there is nothing in between, right? You know, I hate that critical theory of IR. Sorry to say that, because I can't understand it at the time. <laughs> but, you know, it's easy to understand, you know, this realism and uh, the, uh, you know, uh, normative approach in IR. Is Mark Hoffman teaching? <clears throat> We've moved on, you know. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> so that's, you know, I think that the two approaches that we are taking. So we create norms, but at the same time, you know, we realize balance of power is also important. So that is the best, you know, course of action. We don't want to be, you know, forced to choose. So because that is not, you know, I think, uh, 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 good options for uh, small and also middle powers. Because, you know, for countries like, you know, Indonesia and, 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 and in fact, in other Southeast Asian countries, alliance, you know, will be, uh, uh, I think, will face risk of abandonment. You know, so you choose. And then if, you know, the two great powers, you know, try to uh, reconcile, then they will abandon you. Then you will be in trouble. You know, so it's better, you know, actually to, you know, to stay, you know, to, 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 to start, you know, in, you know in, in, in the middle. So that's, you know, it's not really, you know, a good policy, but that's the only, you know, options available. So in, in dealing with China. But we also try to engage, you know, China in many multilateral institutions. You know, China is a very important partner in the ASEAN Plus 3. China is a very, uh, I think, important, you know, in the East Asia Summit. And also, you know, through all this ASEAN-China uh, platform, you know, we try, you know, to, to, to engage China. Well, uh, of course, you know, there are uh, serious uh, strategic, you know, issues that we face. Uh, but that uh, comes back, you know, to the degree of ASEAN unity, you know, in order to deal with those, you know, strategic uh, challenges that, that we face. This is a very difficult issue, you know, because on South China Sea, for example, there is no one ASEAN view, right? So because, you know, well, 2012 was, you know, really a reminder uh, that this particular strategic, you know, issue, you know, can be uh, a serious challenge for, you know, for, you know, for ASEAN. So unity is a challenge now. So, you know, what I've been trying to tell my ASEAN colleagues, probably, you know, if ASEAN want to sustain its centrality, so we need to think in terms of how you maintain that centrality without unity. So it sounds a bit weird, you know, how to be central, you know, without unity. And then are we going to create this ASEAN community without unity at the same time? So these are the new questions that all of us, you know, need to ponder, you know, about, you know, how you maintain ASEAN centrality without unity. So this is part of the post-ASEAN foreign policy that, I, you know, I've been advocating. You know, because ASEAN always thinks that all the 10 ASEAN countries should agree on everything. That's, you know, that's delusional, you know, because it never happened, you know, that, you know, uh, unless, you know, you really do a very high level of abstractions, then everybody can agree with it. You know, if you go up to norm, 
that's why ASEAN, ASEAN love norms, you know, because you can't disagree with norms, right? <laughs> you know, but, you know, in reality, uh, so, you know, I think now we should not, you know, uh, 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 create an agreement just for the sake of having agreement without looking at, you know, what are issues at stake. So these are the challenges that I talk about, you know, because until today I don't think that ASEAN already find uh, a, a suitable or appropriate, you know, a strategy in order to deal with that. But again, you know, I don't, I don't really, you know, uh, uh, suggest that you know we should, you know, see uh, China as a threat. It's not a threat. Uh, China, uh, because it's big, and then you know, it doesn't automatically, you know, become, you know, a threat. Because I don't think that China ever uh, uh, now, you know, uh, uh, threaten any uh, country by invasion, you know, and and so on. And 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 then, mind you, we have been dealing with China for thousands of years. You know, as the Vietnamese, they've been dealing with the Chinese for what, three thousand years, two thousand years. So they found a way, you know, how to deal with, you know, a more, you know, you know, powerful, China, powerful China. That's also, you know, I think applies to, you know, other countries as well. So I was uh, uh, actually uh, told by one of, uh, you know, uh, you know, friend said that, you know, be careful, you know, if the U.S. leave, you know, uh, East Asia, then you know, Indonesia or ASEAN countries, you know, can be, you know, in a very difficult, you know, state of affairs. My reply is just, you know, be my guest, man. So we've been dealing with China, we can't help it. Then we'll find a way, you know, to deal with China, you know, again. So it's not really, you know, uh, our, our, our choice. I mean, it's not, it's up to us, you know, that whether the U.S. want to, you know, uh, stay or want, you know, you know, want to leave. But China is there, you can't move it. You know, it's like Singapore, Indonesia. You know, I mean, Indonesia and Singapore will be, you know, neighbors forever. <laughs> and also in Australia. So that's why, you know, we have all this, you know, problem. What the ability to manage it, you know, is, is, is there. Okay. Uh, loads of questions. Uh, let me sort of go back to one of the rows further uh, up, sort of uh, over there, and then we'll have one on this side of the room. Yeah. But first... Uh, Hi, Dr. Rizal. My name is Hanan. I'm from Speak Malaysia. up a little. We can't hear you here. Yeah. Um, my name is Hanan. I do international relations from Malaysia, but in no way is my question a projection of my government. Um, my question is not so much on ASEAN, but more so on um, the active engagement and strategic reassessment, uh, in particular on like the two-level games that Indonesia has to play um, between domestic, the relationship domestically and internationally. Um, I would like to ask about the international consequences of crony capitalism in Indonesia and the legacy of Suharto. Uh, for example, in 1998, 1999, um, during the Habib, Habibis, Mr. Habibis era, uh, IMF was a bit skeptical. Um, skeptical to provide loan to Indonesia. How is the situation now in, with regards to corny capitalism and uh, domestically, and what are the international consequences of it currently? Okay, thank you. And uh, there was a question here on my left. Uh, yes. Um, hi, Dr. Riza. So m my name is Jay, and I'm from Singapore. Um, so my question mainly is with regards to Indonesia's relationship with uh, Timor Leste. So from my understanding, Timor Leste is very interested in joining ASEAN, and I was wondering um, what is Indonesia's stance on that, and how would you characterize Indonesia's relationship with Timor Leste? Thank you. Okay. Uh, I'll begin with the easier <laughs> questions on Timor Leste. Uh, our relationship with Timor Leste is very good. And in fact, Indonesia is the promoter or the sponsor, if you like, for you know, Timor Leste to become a member of ASEAN. We have been, we have been pushing uh, Timor Leste to become a member of ASEAN for the last, I think, five, six years. Uh, and hopefully, you know, will become a reality soon. Uh, but, you know, uh, uh, other issues, almost non-existent, 
uh, you know, in, in the bilateral uh, cooperations between, you know, Indonesia and Timor-Leste. And, uh, well, but uh, there are challenges that, you know, Timor-Leste actually face, you know, in terms of this regional integration, especially into, you know, into ASEAN. But, you know, we, we help them, you know, also to overcome those challenges. You know, for example, uh, do you know how many ASEAN meetings per year? 1,000 and 1,100, you know, roughly. Do you know how many officials in the Timor-Leste's Ministry of Foreign Affairs? Probably around like 60. So they can't go to all the meetings, right? <laughs> so, you know, our argument is that, you know, even as a member of the, you know, uh, uh, ASEAN, do you really need to go to all, you know, those, those meetings? Because, you know, I don't think that, you know, that should be, uh, that, that you know, uh, argument is used, you know, to block uh, Timor-Leste's, you know, uh, uh, membership in, you know, in, in, in ASEAN. Uh, but, you know, I think our foreign ministry also run a lot of programs, you know, to help uh, foreign ministry in, in, in Dili, in, in Timor-Leste as well. Uh, in fact, it's very close relation, you know, between the, uh, you know, the two countries. No, I think the, the wife of the foreign minister is uh, Indonesian, you know, from our foreign ministry. <laughs> so, you know, so, you know, we will continue to, you know, support them, you know, and also uh, encourage them to uh, be a member of, you know, of ASEAN. Um, I'm not really sure uh, how the implications of that process of settling the maritime boundaries, you know, between Australia and uh, Timor-Leste, you know, would be. Uh, but, you know, from what I gather, uh, whatever they, you know, uh, decide in order to solve that uh, uh, border issue will not have much implications on either Indonesia, uh, Timor-Leste's, you know, uh, borders or Indonesia, uh, Australia's, uh, you know, borders. Uh, one particular uh, uh, issue is actually this small little uh, enclave on the part of, on the Indonesian part of the West uh, Timor, it's called Okusi. So if you look at the map, it's, it's very, very strange. You know, so because you know, deep inside the Indonesia's uh, uh, territory or Indonesia's side of the uh, uh, Timor, there is this you know enclave called you know the, I think it's district level, yeah, uh, Okusi. You know now you know the, when, whenever they want to go to uh, Timor Leste, I think they have to take a boat. You know, there is no, uh, I don't know, Frega. There is uh, the, the the borders. I mean the the checkpoints between Okusi and you know. So there was a talk in the past, you know, how to create that. Corridor, right? You know, from the Okusi to, you know, to to, you know, to Timor Leste, and and the exchanges, you know, between the two uh, countries, I think, is quite extensive. You know, it's a lot of uh, Timor Leste officials also, you know, travel and, and come to uh, you know Jakarta. So it's as good as Indonesia Netherlands, you know, relations. You know, we don't harbor this, you know, ill feeling. You know, despite the fact that Netherlands occupied Indonesia for a long time. <laughs> um, I think you've been reading uh, books on these uh, oligarchs you know, in, in Indonesia. I think Jeff Winters, or are you writing a thesis on Indonesia's oligarch, <laughs> not the oligarchy, as, you know, or, or crony, you know, capitalism and so on? Right. Uh, it's not as you know bad as it was before. So let's put it that way. So I'm not saying that you know it's gone. You know this crony capitalism, uh, but. You know, in certain part of Indonesia, this so-called this you know chronic capitalism has been reduced in size, so you can find them you know, more in district level, uh, provincial level, but at a national level, it's very difficult now you know to be part of a crony, or even if you want to establish a chronic capitalism. Uh, Pak Jokowi's son, 
you know, he's basically running his own, you know, this Martaba, you know, company. <laughs> so it's just no way, you know, in Indonesia now that, you know, you try to get uh, this access, you know, through, uh, to power in order to create, you know, wealth anymore. And our anti-corruption commission is one of the most active in the world. Uh, even though uh, people, uh, people begin to question, you know, despite of like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of officials get arrested, but cases of corruption continue to take place. Uh, so, you know, you know, in that context, the economy now is a bit, you know, I think uh, uh, changing in the sense that, uh, you know, in the past, you know exactly, you know, who you should go to in order to get a business uh, uh, done. But these days, it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult, uh, you, know, to, you know, to do that because there is no uh, census of powers, you know, in terms of the uh, allocations of uh, resources, you know, in, in Indonesia. Because that system, I think, collapsed, you know, uh, uh, as the new order collapsed, you know, in uh, 1998. Uh, here we have, you know, a friend of mine, mine you know, from Asia House, uh, uh, Michael, you can ask him, uh, you know, how the uh, Indonesia's economy uh, uh, changed. So we have many players now, sometimes it makes it even more difficult, uh, <laughs> because you have these uh, uh, new, uh, uh, you know, players, you know, you, know, you know, in that context. So I think what makes it difficult now for Indonesia in order to attract, you know, foreign investment, not so much, you know, because uh, the, our economy was still characterized by, or, or characterized or not by this uh, chronic capitalism, but you know by other factors. You know, number one, you know, I think because you know, the whole world is having difficulty, you know, in terms of this uh, funding, uh, uh, fund in order to invest. Number two, you know, of course, as Indonesia is still in the process of adjustment, uh, a lot of regulations being you know rewritten, you know, and so on. Uh, some of the investors you know, probably need you know a clearer. Uh, view first, you know, on 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 in the industry sector, but we are trying our best, you know, actually, uh, in order to you know create a more friendly uh, investment uh, environment. Uh, you can ask Pak Nurul here; he is the the head of the investment board. Later on, uh, whether he ever encounters you know this chronic capitalism in bringing all these you know uh, companies from you know from abroad or not. Uh, but you know, Pak Jokowi cut short of those you know. Many many months that you needed, you know, you know, in order to start business in Indonesia. Now it's only what three days, three hours. No, so you can get these permissions, you know, to open uh, business and and do things in in Indonesia. Three hours at least in Pak Nurul's office. But you know, <laughs> I don't know whether after you get out of his office, probably you need another three days. <laughs> Especially if you go to the uh, local level, right? So uh, it's not um, it's always uh, easy. But, you know, our rank in terms of the uh, competitiveness, for example, because of these measures has increased. So last, uh, two years ago, 114, right? 16, 116 in terms of rank, is ease of doing business. But now we jump to 94. Uh, the Minister for Investment, actually is a friend of mine, so he told me a very funny story because, you know, that morning when he received that news that Indonesia has moved from 116, you know, to 94, so he went straight to see the president. Then he reported it that you know Indonesia's ranking, you know, improved. Then the president asked, to what you know, which uh, I mean, uh, what's the rank now? And then he said 94 from 116. The president got very upset. You know, so go back to your office, make it number 40 at least. You know, so that is basically the you know the target. Okay, um, there are some more questions. I'll take the question here from the right, yeah, um, and then sort of. Sort of further up, um, yeah, or maybe actually I will collect three questions because of the time factor. Yeah, so we'll start with the the gentleman here on the right. 
Is it on? Hiya. Uh, my name is Hafiz. I'm from the University of Bristol. Um, I would like to ask you um, about how can Indonesia, well, how can ASEAN uh, rectify the code of conduct, especially with, uh, with regards to the South China Sea dispute, and get China in, basically? And uh, to a certain extent, can Indonesia play a role uh, in mediating as as uh, Indonesia is not a claimant of the South China Sea dispute. Thank you. Okay. I should say that we should only have one question being asked in the interest of time. So uh, the lady who is sitting... Uh, hi, I'm Rania. I'm uh, studying PPE here at LSE. And I'd like to know um, your opinion on... Um, ASEAN right now is moving towards a common market, and I'd like to know your opinion on that and how that would probably um, affect Indonesia's economy. Thank you. Thank you. And the gentleman who was sitting right next to her. Yes. Uh, thank you, Your Excellency and uh, Dr. Hacker. Uh, my question uh, is regarding um, the uh, rejected uh, enforcement mechanism uh, in ASEAN and specifically uh, how that notion can be reconciled with um, the idea of non-interference uh, and what considerations there are uh, as to why this was implemented and um, uh, how we might manage concerns about non-interference in general. Thank you. Okay. On the last questions first, uh, the story was when the ten wise men, you know, met, you know, as a members of the, uh, let's call it at the time the eminent uh, person group ABG, you know, they were tasked, you know, to draft, uh, to, uh, to to come up with the proposals, you know, for the ASEAN Charter. All of them they were asked, you know, a very simple question: What is the biggest problem? in ASEAN, and all of them answered implementation, right? So that was, you know, I think the beginning of this uh, uh, idea of having this, you know, mechanism to enforce compliance uh, and, and also regime sanctions, you know, and, and, and so on, you know, at, at the time. And then at the, the Secretary General at the time, I think Pa Ong Kang Yong, you know, from Singapore, and then went back to his office and then looked at, you know, the, 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 the rate of implementations of all ASEAN agreements. And then, you know, he basically found out probably around like 35, 40% you know, of all the ASEAN agreement you know, were implemented. And then, of course, you know, these 10 wise men you know, had this long debate, long discussion. But it was you know, actually the late uh, Ali Alatas, you know, the uh, great uh, foreign minister of Indonesia. Uh, and also uh, some of us uh, in this room you know, thought that probably, uh, especially in the, the economy, uh, we need to introduce that, you know, uh, uh, mechanism to enforce compliance, because you know you can't go on, you know, forever, you know, on this voluntary, you know, basis. But you know, mechanism to enforce compliance without sanctions is basically useless, right? You know, so that's why Indonesia at the time quite progressive. We were quite progressive. Probably, you know, if, if other ASEAN countries propose exactly the same proposal now, we will reject it. <laughs> so we came up with the idea that, you know, we need to have probably start thinking about, you know, what sort of sanctions that should be imposed on member states that refuse to comply with the agreement. Uh, nobody talked about expelling members, members at the time, yeah? but we talk about probably, you know, that particular country, you know, should not be allowed, you know, to attend the senior official meeting, say, for two years. 
you know, or you know, if they goes on violating all the agreement, probably their foreign minister should be banned. You know, so that sort of you know uh, 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 ideas that we came up with. So, but you know, of course, uh, ASEAN at the time uh, uh, not convinced that we you know uh, needed that sort of uh, 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 new mechanism to enforce compliance and also regime uh, regime sanctions. Uh, so you know it was dropped, you know, because uh, at the time also I think we, you know, we thought that if, you know, we're the only one who agreed with that, you know, if we uh, use the ASEAN minus X as a principle, then probably ASEAN, Indonesia will be punished all the time. <laughs> While the other nine, you know, actually disagree with, you know, with that. But probably, you know, the time will come, you know, when this idea uh, 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 will be relevant again. We, I didn't see this is actually, you know, contradictory to the principle of non-interference. Non-interference as a principle, you know, is there in the UN Charter. You know, in fact, you know, you can't go out and then say everybody, to everybody, no, we are going to intervene in our domestic affairs all the time. Nobody, not even the EU. You know, they also still you know, work on that you know, you know, basis. You, know, if you remember during the debate on the Brexit, you know, if you know, there was a comment from other European countries, you know, many in the, in, in the UK is quite upset, mm -hmm. and then citing the principle of non-interference. But in reality, we, even within ASEAN, we intervene a lot you know, in, in each other's, you know, uh, uh, you know, affairs. That's actually happened. You know, the only difference, ASEAN does not actually uh, uh, go, you know, into the open, you know, when we try to intervene, you know, in our own domestic affairs. This is still a very elitist grouping, you know, because of these very strong and good relations among the officials uh, are still there. And then this, you know, still... Uh, the, the, the most useful uh, uh, platform through which you know, ASEAN actually intervene you know, with each other. Uh, that's you know, actually you know, a reality. So I don't, I don't really think that you know, ASEAN really, really close you know, its uh, 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 eyes you know, whenever you know, we uh, think that there are domestic problems in member states that can affect you know, other member states or you know, those problems that you know, actually have the uh, transnational you know, implications. On South China Sea, this is quite tough, but I think the key is really, you know, passion. Uh, it's not easy uh, to come up with the, 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 the uh, consensus or the agreement, even among the ASEAN member states, uh, for obvious reason. You know, right? You know, not all ASEAN member states, you know, has the same stake, you know, in South China Sea. So it would be difficult, I think, you know, to force Laos to think about maritime issues, right? The <laughs> landlock. Uh, but, you know, uh, and also uh, the status of you know uh, ASEAN member states you know when it comes to South China Sea also you know differ one another Malaysia Singa uh, Malaysia uh, Vietnam Philippines and Brunei are climate states right in, the rest is not are not so you know in that context even though all the ASEAN member states agree that you know we should have you know, some kind of, you know, common platform with China so that we can manage the problem is there. Uh, but, you know, how to get that is, I think, is quite, you know, a, a long uh, process. But there have been a number of, of, of progress, of course. Uh, for example, now we have agreed with China on the uh, framework, you know, for the elements of the code of conduct. It's, it's elements, but still framework. <laughs> so, but before that, we didn't have. That was agreed, I think, uh, recently. Uh, recently, right? The uh, framework of elements of the code of conduct. Yeah. So next step, you know, remove the framework, 
then we can have elements you know, of the code of conduct and then try to fill in you know what are those elements you know and and you know and so on but you know i think uh, my personal view is that i don't think that we can solve the south china sea issue uh, because this sovereignty issue you know it will take you know long time uh, you know before uh, you can resolve the uh, uh, overlapping you know claims you know over a certain uh, uh, you know territory but you know now we are aiming for managing it you know through this you know code of conduct the ideas that you know we discuss with China is quite, I think, you know, quite real. It's, you know, I mean, rules, you know, and so on. For example, that you know we should notify each other, you know, in terms of preventing the collusions, you know, on, and, you know, at, at sea among the vessels, you know, and so on. So, you know, I think China and ASEAN now kind of like agreeing to use the cues. We, are, if you're familiar with that, the code of unplanned encounters uh, at sea. You know, uh, you know. So, for example, is talk about, you know, if two ships actually passing each other. Don't you know use you know the light to beam at each other. Do not you know spray water you know at each other. So actually we're talking you know, even on those technical uh, issues you know within this uh, uh, a broad framework of elements of the uh, uh, code of conduct. But at least there are three I think you know important elements that we are discussing with China. Number one, how you build the uh, uh, confidence you know between China and and and, and, and ASEAN. And, and this is actually fit in very well with the Chinese proposals on the joint development. So because we do also uh, agree that joint development can be a very important you know, uh, 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 areas where China and ASEAN can build that uh, confidence you know, in South China Sea. Number two, on conflict uh, prevention. So conflict prevention will be a very important element of the COC. Number three is actually conflict uh, management, you know, if you know, the conflict you know, arise. So these are the, the three elements that you know actually we are uh, talking and discussing with you know, you know with China. The failure to come up with the result uh, should not be seen you know as a failure of ASEAN and China to deal with or to manage South China Sea. You know because you know it will take I think I don't know even though I think ASEAN and China officials they're quite optimistic that they can get you know I think uh, these elements more elaborated by the end of this year. But I think the complete uh, code of conduct will take you know some more uh, negotiations and discussions uh, with uh, you know, uh, between China and, and ASEAN. The final one on common market of ASEAN. What was this question again? So we are trying to create that ASEAN economic community, uh, and I think this is w an area where you know a lot of implementation you know has been uh, uh, done by you know, by by ASEAN. But we're not aiming at this EU style. Uh, economic integrations, you know, because uh, ASEAN still uh, cannot or do not see the value of, say, free freedom of, of movement as an important part of creating this economic you know, integration. Especially, you know, we learn from the experience <coughs> in the EU. <laughs> so the step-by-step, -step, you know, approach, you know, by, by ASEAN. But if you look at even the tariff, you know, among the ASEAN countries, it's very low already, right? Some even like zero. And then you know some areas is already like as low as like five, I think, five uh, percent. But you know, in um, between the old members, I think it's almost non-existent, right? Mm. In terms of the uh, 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 tariff, uh, and 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 we uh, by 2025, uh, you know, we hope you know we can actually implement. I think now this is research and actually done in Singapore saying that the implementation rate of the ASEAN Economic Community Blueprint is almost. 79 or 80 percent 
but of course you know the other 20% is the most difficult one <laughs> uh, but you know we quite optimistic that they can achieve that you know by 2025 as well we are out of time but sure. you want to collect uh, should I collect one more sure. Sure. Yeah. okay so this will be the final round uh, there were I think a couple of hands up I'll just take uh, three more but can you please uh, be very very short yeah when asking the question uh, ladies sort of uh, in, the, in the fourth row over there and then sort of one behind and then again the row behind, yeah, so those three. Okay. Good evening, Your Excellency. I'm Winnie. I'm a Malaysian. I work as a business consultant. Often my clients do not see ASEAN as a block or a region and uh, they often ask for my advice on um, the lack of harmonizations on regulations, for example, when a business goes into Indonesia and after a couple of years, um, they are thinking that they can use the same model to invest in Malaysia and that's always not the case. So I appreciate your view on how do you see this aspect in terms of the lacking of harmonizations for regulations in many Asia across ASEAN countries. Thank you. Harmonization question, yes. So if we move on to the next person. Um, I'm Olivia from, um, I'm studying social policy and development um, at the LSE now. Could you speak up please, we can hardly hear you here. Uh, I'm Olivia, I'm um, at the moment studying social policy and development at LSE. Um, Parizal, I would like to ask you about, it seems that under Jokowi, um, Indonesia is looking more uh, towards China. Towards China. There, there is a flood of investment actually coming in from China, but there is also this um, situation where Indonesia is really like trying to be um, defending its sovereignty, especially in the naming of the North Natuna Sea. Um, what does that mean? What is actually, what do you think is Indonesia's foreign policy um, on China? And would that, would that be that Indonesia won't budge Okay, we only have, on, can only allow one question okay. at this point. Thank uh, you one batch on. Um, You've okay. had your question. I know, I know what it would yeah. be. Um, and the next person, please. Good evening, Your Excellency. Um, I'm Sarah. I'm studying international relations and politics at LSE, and I'm from Singapore. My question is, you mentioned earlier that domestic determinants are really important to foreign policy in ASEAN, especially for Indonesia. I also read your work earlier about how um, democratic values are quite important to how Indonesia um, interacts with ASEAN, especially in the context of Burma. My question is, um, with the consolidation of democracy in Indonesia since the 2014 election of Jokowi, who's seen as a common man and represents the people, as well as the outcry against the um, attempts to make elections indirect um, at the local the level. Yeah. Um, how how do you feel like the consolidation of democracy in Indonesia has affected its foreign policy um, in the last five years? Okay, thank, thank you. you. Just very briefly. Right. Um, the, well, now we uh, get used to many voices, you know, in the uh, foreign policy making. You know, so as democracy began to consolidate, you know, actually it's not with the election of Jokowi, it's actually even before that, uh, you know, after the election in 2009. Uh, so, you know, foreign policy is no longer, you know, the domain, you know, for the few, you know, because, you know, we need to take into account all the uh, voices out there, you know, in, 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 you know in, in the country. But at the same time, you know, as democratic foreign, pol uh, foreign policy making become more democratic, the challenges are also, you know, uh, more now, so because, you know, it's not always easy, you know, to really 
take into account all those views and then articulate it into the uh, single or coherent you know, foreign policy. So that's why sometimes you know you feel you will find this you know uh, a degree of contradictory you know in Indonesia's foreign policy because you know it is bound to reflect different uh, views and position in 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 Indonesia. But you know under authoritarian rule you know it's only one man meant foreign policy. Everybody else you know actually just followed and implemented. Um, on the questions of China, like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's actually, again, you have to look at you know, the numbers you know, compared to other uh, investors in, in Indonesia. So there is no like, you know, uh, 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 like dominant Chinese investment in Indonesia. 1.5 billion only is increasing, you know, double from 2015. Uh, now, it's, you know, this 1.5 billion figure is just double from last year. Last year is around like 700 a million US dollars. That's what we really want, you know, so for, for, for China to actually become on par with other, you know, investors in, in, in the country. Uh, and look at the infrastructure, for example, right? Let, let me, you know, Frank, you know, here. Indonesia needs 500 billion uh, uh, for the next, I think, five years, right, in terms of the uh, 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 infrastructure investment. Our budget can only come up with around like 30 to 35 billion US dollars per year, you know, for the infrastructure. Then the whole regions actually require, I think, 2,300 billion US dollars you know, until 2030. If we want to really, you know, invest and build those infrastructure, where the money, you know, come from? US don't think so. Japan, yes, still very important uh, uh, players. EU. Of course not. You know, I don't think that you know EU is still interested in building roads, bridges, you know, and and, and other infrastructure projects, you know, in you know in the regions. You know, in fact, you know, somebody came up to me, you know, said that Parizal, you know, you can ask the Chinese to build the ports, but you know, we can manage the port for you. <laughs> so that's basically you know where the <laughs> where where Europe you know fit in, you know, because of the technology and also the uh, ability to manage those you know those ports. But you know, Europe. And the U.S. are no longer in the business of constructing roads, railways, or uh, 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 ports, you know, because you know, but they provide the uh, 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 services, you know, more. So, you know, I don't, I don't really, you know, uh, I'm not really worried, you know, because we do need China. Having said that, you know, the implication is there because, well, uh, yesterday I spoke, you know, in one of the think tank here, you know, we discussed about. Uh, uh, this uh, China's the BR, you know, BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, and then if you look at all the literature on this, you know, mm. you know, you will be told that you know, look, be careful with you know China's you know, Belt and Road Initiative, you know, because number one, you must, you have to use Chinese technology, Chinese Chinese expertise, you know, Chinese uh, 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 goods and so on. So my reply was, what's so different, you know, with the U.S. or Japan? We also use the China, you know, Japanese technology or American technology. All the countries, you know, would, you know, of course, you know, try to uh, uh, promote that. So then how China is different, you know, in that, in that regard. It's all the same with other, uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, major powers. But the questions of workers, you know, of course, that's always sensitive, you know, in many countries. China begin to learn that as well. You know, they have a problem in Sri Lanka. They have a problem, you know, in I think this, you know, China-Pakistan, you know, economic corridor. They did have a problem, you know, in Myanmar, you know, with this the 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 dam, you know, development, you know, and so on. So this is the issue that you know we begin to, you know, I think, you know, have more discussions. And Indonesia 
you know, actually must come up with a very clear guidance on that. You know, so in which I think level technical skills that you know we can allow, uh, say Chinese, you know, uh, uh, workers, you know, to come in in a certain project, and also in which you know level that you know we should insist that you know only Indonesian should be used, you know, as the uh, 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 part of that you know, project. So you know, you know, you know, again, uh, the second criticism is like you know, as we receive more investment from China, then a lot of people think that you know uh, these countries will not be able to stand up, you know, against China in the case of you know, say, South China Sea. That's not true. This is not true. If you look at you know the uh, debate, you know, again, this is you know related to the characteristic of ASEAN. You know, I think when it comes to the, to, to 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 issues of sovereignty, none of the ASEAN countries, you know, I think, uh, would be easily you know uh, coerced. So remember, even Pak Jokowi, you know, when we had that incident, it's not a territorial issue. Actually, an incident, in a fishing you know, incident, then suddenly he decided, let's have the cabinet meeting, you know, in the warships, you know, in around Natuna, you know, Natuna Island. Uh, that's, you know, I think, uh, is not going to affect how Indonesia, and in that, you know, regard any, you know, uh, president, you know, in in dealing with, you know, China. So no one is going to. I think uh, a compromise when it comes to the questions of, uh, you know, sovereignty. <coughs> but I think uh, people tend to forget that China never claimed Natuna. So the dispute that we have with China is only on these definitions, uh, the so-called traditional fishing ground, right? So it's a fishing dispute, you know, because you know they uh, fish, their fishermen also came, you know, into the uh, area of our EEZ, you know, sometime then. We try to resolve it, you know, accordingly, you know, as a, a fishing uh, uh, issue. Harmonization of regulations. Uh, I don't think that we have, you know, uh, time with that. And then you can ask some of our economists here in the room uh, you know, to what extent that this harmonization of regulations in uh, ASEAN. But there have been a number of, I think, uh, 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 initiatives taken by uh, ASEAN member states within that uh, ASEAN economic community uh, in order to harmonize. Uh, the uh, regulations, especially in terms of like uh, investment, you know, and, and, and so on. Thank you. Okay, I think uh, we have gone over time uh, by a few uh, minutes. Um, I hope that was okay for you nevertheless. I'd like to thank all of you as members of our audience for attending tonight's event. Um, but please join me now in thanking Pak Rizal for a, a very illuminating talk and uh, some very thoughtful and insightful answers to your many questions.